While many may scoff at the very idea of fairies and consign them to superstitious notions of a bygone era, there are still many in Ireland who feel certain that the little people and their ilk are more than just legend. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. In the course of my travels through Ireland, I've had the good fortune to meet not only those who firmly believe in the existence of the fairy folk, but to hear, either in person or through correspondence, from a large number of honest and intelligent individuals who have actually encountered the fairy folk in one of their various forms. I say various forms, because Irish fairies range from the extremely small entities we normally think of when speaking of fairies, to leprechauns, normally said to be the size of a small child, to the puka, who appears in the form of a black dog, a horse, a goat, or other animal, to such human-sized heralds of death as the banshee and the terrifying Dullahan who is said to carry his head in one hand and a whip made of human spine in his other hand as he drives the dreaded coach of Bower, the death coach. In Ireland, the fairy folk, or the good people, or the gentry, as tradition informs us they prefer to be called, are not always the charming, benign characters we've come to expect from fairy tales and Disney films, but are instead entities which can at times be dangerous and who, when encountered, should be treated with the utmost respect and caution. In times past, it was common for those dwelling in areas in the countryside known to be frequented by the fairies to, before retiring for the night, leave out offerings of small amounts of milk, butter, honey, stirabout or soda bread beside the hearth or outside the cottage door to ensure a harmonious coexistence with the good people. And as recently as 1999, the route of a multi-million dollar motorway project in County Clare was changed to curve round a white thorn bush under which the fairies of Munster were believed to rest and see to their wounds after engaging in fights with the fairies of Connaught. To remove the fairy bush, which grew within the path of the original route, would, it was believed, incite the fairies to revenge and result in many accidents. For centuries, anyone wishing to build a new house anywhere in the countryside was well advised to check with the local wise woman, a woman known to be knowledgeable concerning the other world 
as to whether the proposed house site might intrude upon land claimed by the fairies or in any other way interfere with their activities the historian dermot mcmanus records in his study of irish fairies the middle kingdom the fate of one of his neighbours in Cultimaw county mayo paddy blaine who failed to check with a wise woman before constructing his house at night the house would sometimes shake so violently that he feared the house might tumble down upon him he was advised to consult the local wise woman and upon doing so learned that a corner of his house jutted into a path the fairies often travelled and needed to be removed the offending corner of the house was removed and peace reigned in the house ever after though often depicted as a benign cheerful fun-loving trickster the leprechaun is actually feared by many among the irish country folk i remember an elderly woman in county galway becoming quite agitated when i asked whether she believed in the existence of leprechauns don't even say that word she warned me one might hear you in his nineteen twenty five book ghostland the prolific irish collector of ghost stories elliot o'donnell recorded two encounters ellen his family cook had experienced with leprechauns when she was a girl ellen chanced upon a leprechaun close to the cottage in which she was living as she was crossing a field one evening at twilight with her mother without warning her mother stopped pointed to a lone elm tree standing in the otherwise open field and excitedly said look look and there the girl saw a strange figure about as tall as a kitchen table it wore a red roundabout red breeches and black stockings ellen remembered but it had nothing on its head and its face was withered old as the hills and its eyes seemed to glow with a strange light as it stood quite still and stared at us holy mary protect me her mother exclaimed while crossing herself tis the leprechaun that haunts our family the saints preserve us what can it want as they hurried away her mother crossed herself again several times and implored her daughter to not under any circumstances look back well i looked straight ahead of me for a minute or so and then curiosity getting the upper hand of me i peeped round over my shoulder ellen recalled and there holy mary save me was the leprechaun following us the moment however it caught my eyes it stopped frowned and vanished disappeared right in the twinkling of an eye into nothing when her mother realized what her daughter had done the older woman cried tis bad luck ye'll be bringin to myself and all the blessed household she stormed and raved at me all the way home ellen told o'donnell but that didn't avert the bad luck for that very night we all my father and my mother and brothers and myself heard the leprechaun in the house grunting and snorting and stamping up and down the kitchen and in the morning 
we found every bit of crockery we possessed broken, and two out of three of our pigs terribly sick with the favour, all because I looked round at the leprechaun. But sometimes leprechauns have been known to bring good luck. On another occasion, O'Donnell's cook observed two leprechauns standing by a stile which opened onto a lane which leads to the road between the town of Hospital and the village of Bellinanti in County Limerick. I was going to market with eggs and butter and had my basket on my arm, she told O'Donnell. It was a very bright, warm morning, and the leprechauns were standing right up against the stile I had to get over, with sunlight pouring on them. The leprechaun she saw that morning looked just like the one she had seen before, all in red, with queer white faces and bare heads, she remembered, and when they saw me stand still, almost scared out of my senses, they slipped to one side, and then seemed to sink right into the earth and disappear. Well, I scrambled over the stile in safety, for in my hurry, t'was a wonder the eggs were not broken, and ran till I was out of breath. But I needn't have been so upset, for when I told Father Murphy about it, he laughed and said, If it was two leprechauns you saw together, Ellen, there's no need to worry, for tis good luck that they'll be bringing you. And sure he was right, for I got a better price for my eggs and butter that day in the market than I ever got either before or since. The road from hospital to Bellinanti, O'Donnell tells us, has long been considered one of the worst fairy-haunted roads in Ireland, and perhaps he is right, for the road passes through Knockany, the hill of Anya, the queen of the fairies. O'Donnell backs up his assertion with the harrowing experience endured by a relative on this particular road one night as he was being driven in a horse-drawn trap. The moon was high overhead, O'Donnell writes, the sky unclouded, and all was going well, till my aunt's brother was roused out of a reverie by feeling himself suddenly clutched hold of by his manservant, who was sitting back to back with him. The horse had stopped and was shivering in fear, previously a confirmed skeptic as to the fairy folk and all their ilk. The man was stunned to see his trap surrounded by tiny shadowy figures who were attempting to pull his terrified driver down from his seat and on to the road. O'Donnell's relative frantically grabbed the reins and forced the horse to race from the scene. Seemingly paralyzed with fear, it was not until they had reached a spot far from the place where they had encountered the fairies that the driver became calm enough to speak. O'Donnell writes, He then thanked God and all the saints for his deliverance and gave a very graphic account of his experience. He said he was driving along quite all right till the horse suddenly stopped and when he looked down to see what was the cause of it, he perceived a crowd of fairies who rushed at him and, catching hold of him by the legs, tried to drag him off the car. He said their touch was so cold that it benumbed him, 
and had he not prayed as he had never prayed before to his patron saint to aid him, he was quite sure he would never have had the strength to hold on as he did. My aunt's brother, O'Donnell continues, asked him why the fairies had acted in such a manner, and what he thought they would have done had they succeeded in pulling him off the car. The driver answered, it was all because we came on them, sir, when they were dancing. They won't be disturbed when they are in their revels and enjoying themselves. Had they got me down into the road, at which point he crossed himself with great vehemence, maybe I should have lost my sight, or my hearing, or the use of my limbs, and in any case, my soul. A matching account of this event was published in 1922 by another of O'Donnell's relatives, who concluded his narrative with the following. Now strange as this story may appear, neither my relative nor his servant ever went back on their word, but always declared it to be true. Moreover, as my relative was universally regarded as a man of very high integrity, I think what he stated as a fact must be accepted and allowed to pass unchallenged. Furthermore, he and his man were not the only people who have seen fairies in that particular road, for it had long borne the reputation of being fairy-haunted. While the fairy folk tend to remain invisible or lurk in the shadows, occasionally what might be considered physical proof of their existence appears. Dermot McManus cites the experience of two friends of his, a Mr. and Mrs. Coleman, a couple well known in Dublin society, who in August of 1938, along with their two cocker spaniels, were touring the Irish countryside in a trailer caravan when they stopped for the night near a stream in County Leitrim. It was still light around ten in the evening when an elderly woman wearing a shawl over her head appeared, and approaching Mrs. Coleman quietly said, Good evening. Good evening, Mrs. Coleman replied. Are you stopping here tonight? the woman inquired. Yes, Mrs. Coleman answered. Then you ought to leave something for the fairies, the woman warned her in an extremely serious manner and then, without saying another word, she walked off into the distance. As Mrs. Coleman busied herself preparing dinner, the woman's warning quickly faded from her mind, and she failed to leave an offering for the fairies. Before retiring for the night, Mrs. Coleman placed the butter she had purchased earlier that day into a bowl, leveling it up to the brim of the bowl and smoothing it with a knife. She covered the bowl with a plate upon which she placed a heavy stone, and as it was a cool evening, she placed the covered bowl and stone in a narrow space which fit tightly between the underside of the trailer and the roadbed. The next morning, she pulled the bowl out from under the trailer, which was exactly where she had left it. Upon removing the stone and plate, she was stunned to find that two-thirds of the butter was gone. It appeared that something had cleanly cut away, as if with a knife, and removed all of the butter on one side of the bowl, 
and the top portion of the remaining half had been scraped out in a rounded way by something soft and blunt, a large tongue or a small hand, perhaps. If an animal had gotten into the bowl, it would not have been able to put the bowl back into the precise place where Mrs. Coleman had stored it, and surely their dogs would have awakened and begun barking. If a human had taken the butter, he or she would surely have taken the entire bowl. As McManus observed, by a simple process of elimination, it inevitably comes down to the fairies, for from the old woman's words it was clearly fairy country. Besides, this is just the sort of thing they do traditionally. In 1969, the eminent genealogist and historian Rosemary Folliot wrote in the volume one, number one issue of the journal The Irish Ancestor of an intriguing artifact which may provide the most compelling physical proof of the existence of the fairy folk we may ever discover. Early one summer morning in 1868, when he was 18 years old, Miss Folliot's grandfather, John Abraham Folliot, was walking across a field in Lloyd on the outskirts of Kells, County Meath, when he came across a fairy ring of lush grass. Just beyond the ring, he saw a bit of cloth poking out from under a stone. Curious, he picked up the stone and found, hiding beneath it, a miniature coat, which he supposed could only have belonged to a fairy who must have placed it there for safekeeping prior to entering the fairy ring to dance. Despite dire warnings from the locals to whom he showed the coat that bad luck was certain to follow should he not return the coat back to the place in which he had found it, John Folliot kept the coat, and when years later he had the coat examined by one of Dublin's foremost master tailors. The astonished tailor concluded, That coat, sir, was not made by mortal man. Made of some brownish-gray material like Irish frieze, Miss Folliot wrote, it was cut in a style such as might have been favored by a country gentleman of the late 18th century. In length, from collar to hem, it was six and a half inches, with abnormally long sleeves, five inches outside and three and one quarter inches inside, although the width across the shoulders was absurdly narrow, a bare one and three quarters inches. The coat was fully lined, its high collar trimmed with velvet, the sleeves and waist ornamented with pairs of cloth-covered buttons matching the three front buttons. On the lapel, worn almost as a trophy, was a metal button advocating the repeal of the Union. Such buttons, in larger sizes, were high fashion shortly after 1801. The coat had obviously seen hard wear. The velvet collar was greased and shiny. The lining had frayed in several places, notably about the thighs, and there were holes in the tiny pockets, including scorch as if from a hot pipe. 
Various people interested in such phenomena have seen the coat, Miss Folliot continued, and even the most skeptical have had to admit that the shoulders are too narrow to fit any known type of monkey, and that the rubbing on the garment is only consistent with it having been worn by a live being who walked upright, and whose movements and habits resembled those of a human. A black-and-white photograph of the coat accompanied the article. While it would be exciting to subject the coat to modern scientific scrutiny, unfortunately, its whereabouts is currently unknown. Miss Folliot died in 2009 at age 73 while tending her garden at her home in the English Midlands, and despite an attempt on my part to contact a cousin of hers who may currently possess the little coat or know of its whereabouts, my queries have, so far, remained unanswered. While I remain hopeful that I might one day be able to locate and see the fairy coat for myself, it is possible that it no longer resides in our world, but has been spirited away with the fairies back to the other realm. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.